What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. I've never been this nervous in my life. Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! <laughs> what would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. <laughs> be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. So you want to be a rock and roll star? No? Well, how about a podcast star? Well, as it turns out, there's a new all-in-one platform just for you. It's called Anchor, and it's the easiest way to make a podcast. And check this out. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. And then Anchor will distribute the podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify and Apple Podcast and, you know, everywhere else in, uh, in podcast land. And what's even better, you can actually make money from your podcast. Go figure. Uh, no minimum listenership on that. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So go ahead. Download the free Anchor app right now or go to anchor.fm to get started. So what are you waiting for? Podcast stardom is within your reach. Do you read Stephen King? Good news. There's a club for you. The Losers Club. And guess what? You don't have to die at the hands of a shape-shifting clown to join. No, all you have to do is tune in every Friday as us losers journey through the never-ending wastelands of King's Dominion. Each week, we'll either spend hours reading between the pages of one of his books or chew on his latest tweets and Hollywood headlines. What's more, we're always having guests over. Thomas Jane, Mick Garris, Jerry O'Connell, Mary Lambert, Will Wheaton, and the list goes on. So what are you waiting for? Join us as we read on through long days and pleasant nights. Consequence Podcast Network. Hey, welcome to another edition of Kyle Meredith with. It's an audio interview series presented by WFPK Independent Louisville at WFPK.org. Consequence of Sound and the Consequence Podcast Network. Take a second before we get started to hit the subscribe button wherever you're listening from right now. We put out uh, interviews every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at Consequence of Sound, and would love to keep you up to date on all of those. Uh, of course, you can subscribe on iTunes and Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe on YouTube, follow along on Spotify as well, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Kyle Meredith, and today my guest is Bill Barbo from the band Jawbox. 
They're about to hit a reunion tour. It does line up with the 25th anniversary of their major label debut for your own special sweetheart, as well as the 30th anniversary of the band getting their start. We're going to head back to both of those years, 1989 and 1994, to see what was going on with the band and what all went into that record. Of course, coming from the DC punk scene, it was also a volatile time as far as uh, dealing with some fans and critics. But with the best of intentions, the band navigated those waters nicely, and we'll get some of the stories from that era and the success behind songs like Savory, which not only ended up on uh, Modern Rock Radio, but also had some life with Beavis and Butthead. We'll hear about a tour they did with Stone Temple Pilots, how they arrived at their sound, getting back together to do a reunion for Jimmy Fallon, and that, of course, leading to the present day with the shows that's to come, as well as writing some new music together. And if you haven't followed along, Bill also ended up in the news last year, speaking out against Brett Kavanaugh when all of that was happening with the Supreme Court hearings. We're going to hear about that as well. It's a real big honor to do this one. It's Kyle Meredith with Jawbox. Hey, Kyle. How you doing? So, you know, I, I should mention before we get into the 25th anniversary of uh, For Your Own Special Sweetheart, it also happens to be the 30th anniversary of the band, and I know that that happened before you got there, but uh, as my friend Jason Clark was pointing out, in that time, uh, that's when Jawbox actually got a bit of a Louisville connection because the debut had been released here in Louisville on the Slam Deck label. I know you weren't in the band, but were you associated with any of that at the time? Well, um, my association with, with K. Scott really goes back to when he served as a roadie uh, for us on an early tour that we were doing on the Grip record. So the band got together and while I was still in college, released the debut 7-inch EP, then released Grip, and I was I joined the band in time to tour on Grip. So I, I knew K. Scott early on, and um, we always really enjoyed the Louisville people and playing in Louisville. There's always an interesting connection. It seems like in that time, we, we drew two direct lines, one to Chicago and, and one to D.C., and the influence was nothing but good on what was going on here in the scene. Yeah, totally. It's, it, it, was, it, it was remarkable, especially in the 80s, but even still today, I'm sure, how certain quote-unquote small markets like Louisville really were, were able to spawn such a vibrant, thriving musical scene. I mean, I think that has a lot to do with the incubation that was allowed back then, too, which, you know, I, I don't think you get at all today because of the, the new nature of promotion through web and everything. But at that point, I mean, everybody was so, sort of in their own private world, and, and you could be, an entire scene could be influenced by one you know, bootleg cassette making its way in. Yeah, or one person who's a very big personality. You know, I, I, David David Grubbs was, he, he got around. David Grubbs had a lot of influence on the work that we were doing. Um, and Squirrel Bait, you know, was a was a huge band for for us, um, for me in college. You know, I loved listening to Squirrel Bait. And I was like, where, 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 where did these guys come from? Where did this sound come from? Just a few teenagers in Louisville, Kentucky. <laughs> yeah, totally. And then, of course, Slint had, you know, a, a mammoth impact on, on everybody. You know, you know what's always funny about that stuff, too, is because when you ask any of those artists, you know, Squirrel Bait or Slint, because they were just teenagers themselves, they write all that off as just, you know, silly amateur stuff. Yeah, and I don't know why, because it was it was tremendous music, and it was... Um and I, I think to to your point, you're right that that scenes back then could be very much a, a little cesspool petri dish of of infectious stuff going on um, because there wasn't the dilution that is happening now with the internet spreading everything everywhere simultaneously. Uh, and so that a, a scene could really cultivate a unique sound and a whole lot of energy and momentum all on its own just simply by like 
hey, wait a minute, we're all into the same stuff? No way. Right. Let's start a band, right. you know? Well, that, and that, D.C. was the same way, too. You know, D.C. was, we, we always talk about D.C. as being really out of the, the mainstream music loop. You know, New York, New York, L.A. Were, were the music towns, and D.C. was not. D.C. was a quote-unquote government town. And so the fact that the Discord scene grew up and thrived the way that it did was almost in spite of the fact that there was, in spite of and because of the fact that there was no industry here that was really looking to capitalize on the sound at the time it was it was all about making your own scene making your own records and building your own momentum and, and it was just so beautiful though that it did come from dc because when you talk about that government town and, and what that scene is known for you know whether whether it's ian and, and the fugazi stuff you know and, and what they were kind of railing against or or any version of the punk in there you know it was like it, it was so perfectly laid out like at least that scene was happening on the doorstep of, of everything in the Reagan and Bush era. Yeah, there's, there's no denying that the, the political influence was, was huge on us. Um, and and I, I've said this in interviews before, you know, we're literally within spitting distance of the Capitol and the White House. And that creates like this, this gestalt to a scene, like realizing that you're like this close to the people who are making massive decisions that are changing everybody's lives. And it's like, hey, you know what? Here in D.C., us shaking our tiny fists at the dude is, has a different impact than it does if you're coming coming from L.A. or Texas or Florida or wherever else. Well, you know, so I'll take that as a lead into, uh, you know, the anniversary at hand here. And that's the 25th of For Your Own Special Sweetheart, because because that is part of the story. And, and it might be part of the story that you get a little tired of. But but because you did come from that scene, this was the record that signed you to a major label. You signed with Atlantic Records to this. You know, we've all heard about maybe the negative stuff that you all dealt with. But did you did any of your peers were your peers supportive of this at all? Um, our peers were supportive. Ian was supportive at Discord. And by and large, our fans were very supportive because the approach that we took towards signing to a major label was very genuinely done in service of our vision for the music. Um, and that sounds like such a, a very naive and cliche thing to say these days. But back then, it was incredibly important to us during the, the post-Nirvana feeding frenzy that major labels were, were going through at the time to make it clear to ourselves, first of all, to be very honest with ourselves that, hey, we're not doing this because we're hoping to cash in on, on the wave of, of noisy, loud, aggressive music getting played on the radio, but because this is an opportunity for us to make the kinds of records that we really wish we could make and that we were limited by virtue of, of Discord-sized budgets and Discord's promotion from being able to really you know, crack into. And so I think that that is something that we were honest with ourselves about. We felt that we had a good deal of internal integrity about that and then when we took that message on the road, both in the in the record that we wrote, which was hardly a slick mainstream record, right, and in the interviews that we did at the time, we got asked that question a lot, obviously, um, and and the answer was was always the same, which is we're not doing this to try to cash in. You know, it was not. We never had any imaginings of this band as being some kind of mainstream, middle of the road radio success. If we happen to write a song that felt like a good job off song that got on the radio, then great. But we weren't going to change the way that we were writing or the way that we were thinking about the music in order to serve Atlantic Records' agenda, which was to sell as many records as possible. And, and, and to point out, though, that there was... There was a single on there, and we're talking about Savory, which uh, you know did get some radio airplay on Modern Rock Radio. It also landed on uh, MTV. And uh, I think maybe uh, most importantly, it was also on Beavis and Butthead for a bit there. 
um yeah and actually you know it's it's hard to overstate the importance that beavis and butthead did uh, had had on introducing our music to a whole new audience that never would have heard us we have a lot of people to this day especially now that we're touring again saying hey you know what i'd never heard of you guys until i saw you on beavis and butthead and it's kind of like a ridiculous sideways back door to 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 creep into somebody's brain and plant the seed of, of, of Jawbox, but um, we'll take it. And, and the label did their job in that regard in trying to introduce our music to new audiences that never would have heard us. Yeah, I, uh, I spent my Christmas break, vacation, I guess, if you will, uh, going back and reading just a ton of uh, industry mags from, from yesteryears. And especially what I found surprising that I didn't know is in the era of Beavis and Butthead, labels would use that in their in their um, pitch advertising, you know, so in the industry magazines, you know, what you'd see is, you know, Jawbox or whatever, and, and here's the name of the new record and all that, uh, you know, going for ads on this date has been played on Beavis and Butthead this many times, seen by this many people, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like that was a promotioning, uh, promotional marketing tool right there, which, you know, is, is it makes sense now, but it, at the same time, it's almost like, holy cow. Yeah, that show had a lot of influence because I think that the, the approach that the music editors and music directors for the show took was we're going to put something on that will be entertaining for Beavis and Butthead fans, not necessarily for music fans. And so it was, it was really down to the quirks of their personality and their own personal taste about what got shown. And they were just like, hey, this, this video is weird enough that our, our characters will have something interesting to say about it. And so I think that, uh, that stuff like that is a, a really interesting way to think about how music is marketed and promoted because it's not about what is going to appeal to the broadest number of people possible. Let's put the most vanilla crap that we possibly can on the radio because that's what's going to get people listening to our radio station and listening to our ads. They were instead thinking, we've got these bizarre teenage mutant characters. What's the stuff that they would be into, not what our audience necessarily would be into? Did you see a change in the fan base? Because I know with a lot of bands, you know, with with a bigger megaphone, you do attract those fair weather crowds and... and you know, especially in the era of the 90s, there was a lot of boneheads who sort of found their way into the scene who was just there to I don't know, be assholes, I guess. But, uh, you know, but and, and what I'm getting to here, uh, I'll, I'll do a relation to a band like, you know, something like Pearl Jam, who came from, you know, those those punkier roots or whatever. And suddenly they've got, you know, all these these jock uh, assholes kind of coming and starting trouble. But they have a mainstream sound that kind of attracts that, whereas Jawbox, as you're saying, you know, it's not like Sweetheart was a big mainstream record. And I'm wondering if you kind of had to deal with the same type of uh, effect of that. Well, you know, and and again, this might be rose-colored lenses looking back on the past fondly. I felt like the vast majority of the new audiences that we attracted by by being on a major label, by putting out a record like Sweetheart, by going on tour with Stone Temple Pilots, were good people. They were like people who were thirsty for this kind of music, but by virtue of their geographic location or their, their, the culture that they grew up in, they just weren't exposed to underground music. And so suddenly they discovered something that was, that was for them a real galvanizing moment in their youth. Because by, by and large, we were making music for young people. So these were young people who were just like, 
all I've ever heard on the radio is what the radio people wanted me to hear. And now I'm hearing something that's completely different and I'm into it. And so we got a lot of real diehard fans who came in off of the major label records because they just had no access. They didn't have a local record store in Helena, Montana to go to to pick up the the latest Discord release or the latest Slam Deck release or the latest SST release. You know, like that just wasn't their language. Um, And so we really feel benefited from an audience that was by and large into it for the music and not into it for the slam dancing. Um, And that's... That's something that that that's an ages old problem that hardcore music always had to live with. Like from the earliest days of of DC hardcore, yeah. Minor Threat and the Teen Idols and Government Issue, they were making music because they were compelled to make the music. But it's very early, very easily attracted an audience that was there simply to cause trouble. Um, and we saw some of that when we were on tour too. You know, like we, for, I remember being in Fort Collins, Colorado. And we were on stage, and next thing I knew, somebody had lit off tear gas. And I'm just like, what the hell? Because there, there were some skinhead Nazis who were there to try and cause trouble, and there were some anti-skins who were there trying to fight the Nazis. And next thing I knew, there was, I was jumping off the stage, clutching my guitar to avoid getting gassed. And wow. like, that, kind of stuff, that kind of stuff did happen back in the day because um, there was def- definitely a struggle over who was going to claim hardcore music as their own. Um, was it going to be the... the Art, the art. I'm using air quotes. You can't see right now. The, the art, the art school kids who are going to claim punk rock, or was it going to be the let's just bash each other in the head until we're bloody and 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 bruised cluster, you know? And there was a there was a, a fork in the road that happened in the late '80s, early '90s, where the the camps kind of divided, you know? The camps that were just like we're here to cause trouble kind of went on on their path. And then, uh, you know, the art nerd path kind of went on on the same road that we were on. I, I do got to ask, since you brought it up, uh, you, you did tour with STP. And, and, and what was that like? It was a tremendous experience. The, the DeLeo brothers, especially um, Dean and Robert, the guitarist and bass, bass player, were very welcoming to us. They had um, handpicked us from among other artists on Atlantic at the time to open for them. They, they saw something different and interesting in the music that we were doing, and we got to know them as people on the course of the tour. And so that was amazing, playing in front of brand new audiences um, in significantly larger rooms than we'd ever played was, was a tremendous experience. There was, I think, around the time, there was kind of a, a sense that, quote-unquote, underground bands like Jawbox, even though we were on a major label, we still consider ourselves underground. When we got in front of the fan base of these more mainstream um, commercial radio-type type audiences would be booed off the stage or would be mistreated. But that didn't happen with us at all. It was, we had a, a very warm welcome from the audience. I'm sure there were some people in the back who were just like, who are these guys? This, this music's annoying. Play something good. Um, but by and large, we, had, we were able to go to, to parts of the country that we'd never toured to before. Because like we, we played in, let's see, it was Billings. We played in Billings, Montana, in like a, a university arena style type uh, environment. Mm-hmm. There at the time was not a club in Billings that would book a Jawbox show. There were probably eight Jawbox fans in all, in all of Billings, Montana. But because of STP, we got to play in Billings. And then all of a sudden, all these Montanans who had never heard of us heard us and were just like, hey, I'm into this stuff too. This is really cool. Musically, you know, as you're talking about, you know, the way we're hearing this in these small towns, and I'll have to back up a little bit too, you know, to those early days of Jawbox and, and when you were coming in. But but especially all those bands in that scene, I mean, making the move from, from I don't know, punk to 
post whatever you want to throw this type of music into because I've you know we, we've all heard it been categorized as a dozen different things. I mean, did you realize that was happening that that you were not exactly playing by those rules those those mainstream rules I guess or or even you know the the uh, the classic punk rules. Yes and no. And, and again, like the, the lens of history or the distance of history gives me a little bit of a different vantage point now. But at the time, I think we knew first and foremost, we were not a hardcore band to the point where when we were when our when local promoters were promoting our shows, they all, always wanted to say Jawbox featuring Jay Robbins, ex-government issue. And we wanted them not to put that on the on the flyers because government issue attracted a hardcore audience. Mm -hmm. And we didn't want people coming to our shows expecting a hardcore show because we didn't think of ourselves as a hardcore band. We knew we were were a punk band, right? Because we we lived, ate, slept, and breathed punk rock. And we used that to influence our composition, but we didn't consider ourselves stylistically to be a hardcore band, nor did we necessarily want a bunch of people going to a show expecting that they were going to be stage diving and, and slam dancing. So we knew that we needed to like distance ourselves a little bit from that scene as much as we even love that music. We just didn't consider ourselves part of that deal. But on the mainstream side, we also knew that we were not, we were, we knew we were not going to write a commercial record when we wrote for your own special sweetheart. We were signed on the basis of our A&R guy being a huge fan of the band and a huge fan of novelty, our last discord record before we went to, to Atlantic and not because a, he had, heard our demos and recognized they had huge commercial potential because they didn't or B because he felt like he had a young band who was going to be putty in his hands and he could put, you know, pair with the right producer that would solidify our sound and and polish us and make us write more songs in four, four. So he knew what he was getting himself into when he signed us. And we knew that he was going to give us the license to make the record we wanted to make, not the record the label wanted us to make. Uh, Yeah. And I guess, you know, one thing I'm getting to is, you know, when you realize all the things you're not, and, and I'm getting way too in inside baseball here as far as songwriting goes, but then how do you arrive to what you are? What what you are? Because, because again, you know, what Jawbox sounded like at the time, there was very little other pockets where anybody sounded anything quite like that, you know, and, and we are talking about, you know, a slowed down speed of, of punk, but it, at the same time, it's not grunge, which, you know, also had those characteristics. I'm like, how did, mm-hmm. how did that sound arrive? Um, you know, it's, I think that there's a certain alchemy that happens when the right group of people get into a room with the right influences at the right time in their lives. And, and I don't want to make it sound like, you know, we're some kind of magical collection of, of people, but in some ways we were, and it, and it was, it was all down to, what each of us individually was bringing to the band compositionally. And, and I, the reason I say that it's important for, for people to understand that it's each of us is we did not have a monolithic or frontman-driven approach towards songwriting. Yes, Jay was a, a huge influence in how songs ultimately came together because he had to sing a lion's share of them. But it wasn't like Jay's the, the Lennon and McCartney of the band who came in and told the rest of us what to play. Um, he was very egalitarian, and Zach was a huge influence in how we wrote. Like, a lot of bands don't write based upon the drummer coming up with a crazy part. Um, but we like to write that way because Zach would come up with these amazingly inventive parts. And it just, like, it just like clicked for us to go, oh, Zach just wrote this crazy part in fives. Let's play a song in fives. Cool. And so I think it was a lot of the four of us coming together in very experimental and um, jam-oriented ways to just kind of come up with parts and, and ideas that 
that that gelled in a way that was that felt very organic and not very structured for well, we have to have the song be three minutes and 30 seconds long because right. that's what they'll play on the radio. You know, it's like, it just wasn't, it wasn't really that way. Uh, to, to be the person in the band who had to do the repeating vocals of, of what, you know, Jay was saying, I mean, did you ever look at him and say, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we've had lots of interesting conversations about the lyrics over the years. And in fact, um, not, to, not to tip our hand too much, fans who see us on this upcoming tour might, might go like, wait a minute, they're changing the words uh, to some of our older songs because there were ways that like Jay expressed himself in 1989, 1990, 1991 that now he's just like, why did I say that? That was so dumb. I want to cha- change that. So we've, we've done a couple of, of tweaks here and there to add some clarity or to provide some more. Uh, clarity is probably the right word. I think that there was a, an almost intentional obtuseness to some of our lyrics back in the day, which was part of just how, of how we express ourselves. But at the same time, we're, we recognize that there were some missed opportunities to provide a little bit more direction to the listener about what the heck we were talking about. That's interesting. Mysteries, uh, mysteries solved. Yeah, not, not, not totally solved, but more solved than they were back, back then. <laughs> So that leads up, uh, of course, you are going on the reunion tour, uh, and, and we can kind of pull into the present day at this point. Um, uh, that started with, with Fallon. What were those rehearsals like, getting back in the room with each other after all time? You know, it came together pretty quickly and organically. Jonathan Cohen, who was the booker for Fallon at mm-hmm. the time, was a big fan. He, he uh, used to be a Billboard, I think, and was a big fan of the band and wrote fondly of us in Billboard um, during our heyday. And he was just dying to see if he could get us on the show. He was really promoting non-traditional late-night music on the Fallon show. And um, it, it just it was one of those things where, like, he caught us in the mood. And he was, we were just like, hey, you know, that'd be kind of fun. It'd be kind of fun to go on TV and just, like, dust it off and see what we can do. So I, looking back now, I'm kind of surprised that we agreed to do it because it was a total lark. You know, we, we weren't doing it for the money because we didn't get paid anything. And we weren't doing it to promote a record because we didn't have a record. We weren't going on tour. We weren't planning on reuniting for long. So it was kind of just like it just seemed like a fun thing to do. So I, I'm, I'm struggling now because this was, this was a decade ago. It was 2009 that the Fallon Show happened. I'm struggling to remember what the early rehearsals were like. Uh, but we knew we only had four or five songs, I think, to prepare because there were, there were two that they were going to air and then they were giving us the opportunity to have kind of a fans-only mini concert um, in the afternoon before the taping. And so we, we only did like four or five songs. So it wasn't a huge commitment of our time to get together and, and just figure out four or five songs again. Um, so I, I really feel like we only did it in, in maybe two, three rehearsals. I, I really don't rec- recall. But it was fairly straightforward. It was not like a, you know, there was some acrimony during our breakup that we had to get over or anything like that. It was just, it was it was pretty natural for us to get together and just start playing again. And But but the, still, there is that time then between Fallon and now. So, and, and at the time, I mean, I, I think someone in the band said that there would be no tour after that. And it's taken a minute for that to happen. So so what what changed and clicked this time around? That's that's a, kind of a serendipitous story as well. I, I think that there just came a, a point in our lives where we recognized that we enjoyed this music. Like we enjoyed playing this music for people. And we, we, we recognized too, I think, that the, the moment for people to continue caring about Jawbox, our old fans, our new fans, whatever, to care about us was going to slip away if we didn't seize it. You know, we could, if we had decided to wait another year, two years, five years to do this, I think it would have been gone. Like the energy and the momentum and the enthusiasm to do it on our part as well as on our fans' parts to come see us would have been gone. And so I think we just recognize like 
now is the time. And to be very direct with you, we were not thinking it's the 25th anniversary of Sweetheart or it's the 30th anniversary of the band. We were just like, oh, this, this could happen. And, and Zach had been talking with our booking agent, Mahmood, and, and Mahmood was like, you know, if you guys really want to do this, now's a great time to do it. And so Zach, Zach came to Jay, Kim, and me separately and just said, hey, you know what? I've been talking to Mahmood, and he says that there seems to be a, a ripe interest in, in Jawbox reunion shows. Are you guys in? And I was in one of those moods again where I was just like, huh, that would be kind of fun, wouldn't it? So we, we all agreed and, and pretty quickly got down to the business of uh, rehearsing and figuring out how we're going to pull this off. Yeah, a lot of bands, you know, they, they, they say they don't want to reunite without having something new to present. And from what, I, from what I read, you all are messing around with new music. How seriously is that? It's pretty serious. However, I have to warn you that um, putting together a, a set of – we want, we want it to be a pretty comprehensive retrospective. So we're looking at right now, you know, like 28 songs, not even including any new material. Mm-hmm. That's a very different ballgame in terms of preparedness from just putting together four or five for the Fallon show. So it's taking us a ton of time to get together the old material and to feel like we really are on top of it. Like I do not want to go up there and go through the motions on stage just for the sake of saying that we did it. We want to put on a really good show. In order to do that, that takes a ton of rehearsal time. And meanwhile, the rest of we have other lives. Um, you know, Zach still lives in New York. Jay lives in Baltimore. Tim and I live in Silver Spring, Maryland, north of D.C. So getting together for rehearsals is, if we're lucky, up until this month anyway, like a twice-a-month twice phenomenon. Um, and it's hard to focus on retooling the old material and making sure that it feels really, really sharp and proceeding down the path of trying to write new material at the same time. So it's, it's, we're, not like, we're not there yet in terms of feeling like, hey, we're ready to write five or six new tunes. It's more like, let's manage our expectations. Let's make sure we've nailed the old stuff. And then we'll see what we can squeeze in um, before June. Uh, I, I'm going to hit on the personal life just for a second here, and I hope you don't mind, because, of course, when you type your name into Google right now, one of the first things that comes up is another name right beside yours uh, that's happened in the past six months, and that's Kavanaugh. And, and, oh, yeah. And I kind of wonder, um, with now that that's all in the rear view, has that had any other lasting effect on, on your life or the resurgence of, of you into the public eye again like this? Well, uh, that, that was yet another one of those kind of serendipitous, circumstantial type things. Um, it's, it's definitely, it's made me feel punk rock <laughs> in a more visceral way than I have for a while. Mm-hmm. I, I, run, I run a digital agency here in D.C., and we, we do work exclusively for, for nonprofits and, and quote-unquote, the good guys. Like, we're, we're, we're really fighting for progressive causes day in and day out. But as an agency, you're kind of behind the scenes. You're, you're, you're behind supporting the work, but you're not the name that goes with the work necessarily. And being involved in the Kavanaugh thing and the Jawbox opportunity arising at, at roughly the same time made me feel like, oh, this is an opportunity for us to be punk rock again. Like, this is an opportunity for us to say, you know what? I don't care what's going to happen to me personally. I don't care w- what people might think. What I care about is trying to do the right thing. And part of being in a band, being in a punk rock band, or a real punk rock band anyway, is is being willing to say that. It's like, you know what? I really don't care what you think. This is the music I'm going to play. I don't care what you think about my political opinions. This is what I believe. Um, and so it was, it was a good juxtaposition to have both of those things happening roughly simultaneously. And it really it, it fueled me creatively, and it fueled my energy to do this music. Um, and by the same token, I think being involved in music fueled my energy to to feel like I was trying to fight the good fight with regards to the Kavanaugh confirmation. 
uh, we almost go full circle here, you know, talking about how how you said at the beginning that quote that you've made throughout the years of, you know, being, you know, within, within a stone's throw uh, of everything that's happening in government and the White House. And then, you know, 25, 30 years later, uh, you do, as you're saying, you have that opportunity again. And, and it is important, you know, with the uh, the idealism and the ethos and the punk rock mentality to be able to speak out like that on such a public forum that was at the second as those hearings. And uh, I certainly appreciate that. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, part of what made me punk rock in, in the eighties when I first got into this music was guys like Brett Kavanaugh, to be honest with you. Like I, for, for your listeners who don't know what's going on, I went to high school with him. I was, I was a freshman when he was a senior, so we weren't close, but I knew him and his type was the kind of kid that stuffed freshmen in garbage cans. Like that literally happened to a friend of mine in front of my eyes. And so I look at that and I think that's what makes people punk rock is those kinds of experiences with people like that who feel like they own the world, who feel like they're entitled to the world. That's what makes you want to shake your tiny fist and pick up a guitar and do something. Um, and so it, it made me, it, it, again, I think the, the serendipity was, was significant here in all of this stuff coming together at the same time last fall because um, it gave me an opportunity to, to reignite that energy that fueled me when I was a teenager. Well, I, I don't want to overstate this or anything, but in the era of Trump, we can use Jawbox, and we can use a lot of bands that uh, feel the same way as you all have throughout your career. Well, thank you. Bill, with that, it, it has been a serious pleasure talking to you. Congratulations uh, on, on everything uh, on the anniversary, and I'm looking so forward to hearing what you all do with this reunion as well. All right. Thanks so much. All right, man. Take care, and we'll see fun. you around. All right. Thanks, Kyle. It's great meeting you. You too. Bye. Okay. Bye. And a big thanks to Bill from Jawbox, the 25th anniversary of For Your Own Special Sweethearts and those tour dates on the way. Hey, if you haven't already, uh, please do hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening from right now. Spotify, YouTube, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from, uh, hit that subscribe button. After that, you can head over to WFPK.org. That's where I do a show every Monday through Thursday from noon to 3 Eastern, where you can also find some bonus episodes of this series. Head over to consequenceofsound.net for all your music and film news. You can find me at Twitter, at Kyle Meredith, Facebook slash Kyle Meredith. And that does it for another edition. I'm Kyle Meredith. I'll see you next time. Consequence Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.